as health experts getting into the world of business and entrepreneurship, whether it's for-profit or non-for-profit, we've really got to create a movement. I mean, it's part of the marketing strategy, getting your idea out and influencing people to do things they wouldn't normally do. So the question is, how can we actually create that movement? We're going to hear from one of my old med school friends today, Dr. or Professor Andrew Bastaros, and he is an eye surgeon or an ophthalmologist as well as a professor in international eye health at the renowned London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He's also a TED fellow. He's given a talk, well, a couple of TED talks actually, uh, one of which has at least been seen by over a million people. And this is a few years old now, so it's probably even more now. But he's also CEO and co-founder of Peak Vision. This is a, a non-profit venture that really aims to use smartphone technology to increase eye care and access to good eye health across some of the most challenging and remote parts of the world. I'll say one last thing about uh, Andrew, you know, although we were med school buddies, it was his TED talk that I caught up on about 10 years ago or something um, that actually inspired me to create The Entrepreneur's Doctor. So Andrew, welcome. Great to see you, Berries. Thanks for having me. We haven't seen each other in person in, in 20 years probably guaranteed but we're so close so it's awesome to have you on this um, episode so I guess just before we talk about peak vision I think this is really important um, Andrew so I remember reading books by like the likes of Seth Godin if you know him and uh, in, in terms of creating a movement and doing marketing the right way not just trying to sell something but actually influencing people to take action we have to learn it as public health consultants, for example, because we don't really have any major power. <laughs> it's really about influencing people to change their behaviors. I'd love your take on what your advice would be to fellow health professionals getting into entrepreneurship or indeed any aspect of our career. How can we create that movement? Sure, maybe I'll share a short story with you of uh, when I was living in Kenya and we were doing a lot of the foundational work for what is now peak. Uh, we were out at a, a very rural community and there's a lady there who'd been blind, we think about 20 years, and her son lived in the small mud hut next door to her called Philip. Uh, and uh, when one of our community workers had identified her and said she had cataracts and can, could benefit from surgery, we really struggled to persuade her to come. She was really scared about leaving her home. She hadn't left it for the best part of two decades. But we eventually managed to get her to hospital um, she had her surgery and in the next 24 hours she went from someone that looked frail uh, anxious and many thought she had dementia to someone who suddenly stood upright confident uh, looked 10 years younger um, and then we we took her back to her village and when we got to the edge of her village she recognized she was near home um, and she stood outside her hut and saw this stranger there looking very anxiously uh, and said she looked at him for it felt like five minutes but it must have been shorter and she suddenly said is that Philip and he couldn't believe that his mother could see again uh, at which point all the village came out celebrating and all the other people in that community who were were suffering with unnecessary blindness were willing to come forward for surgery the reason I'm telling you that story is you'll remember her story. You won't remember the fact that there is over a billion people living with unnecessary vision loss. So I think when it comes to starting a movement, it's about connecting 
people to the heart of why you care about an issue. And uh, people like Mama Phillips' story personify that. Uh, the data, the stats, they all add evidence to the magnitude of the problem and what might need to be done, but they don't get people out of bed in the morning. So I think it's that combination that you need to start a movement. And that's what I've done to persuade people to come alongside me to, to do all the work from software development to hardware engineering to building the organization that is now Peak. I love it. And we're going to get into Peak in a moment. I just want to kind of build on what you just said there, Andrew. So I guess this applies to giving a TED talk or any kind of presentation, whether it's verbal or in writing, it's grabbing people's attention, but then laying the foundation, as you said, with a brief story that is related to what you're about to then follow up with. Uh, it's this hook and then a story, and then you teach them whatever you want to share them, some new information, and then followed by some form of, okay, now let's do something about it. Give them that call to action, if you like. And that applies to whether you're marketing and selling, uh, you know, for your business or indeed sharing a new idea with folks. Um, so I love it. And if you think back, actually, Andrew, I don't know if you remember, like when we were at med school together, all those years back up in Leeds, like if you think back at what you actually remember from all of those classes, for me, do you remember our psychology lecturer, professor, uh, professor? he would often give some like funky stories and then he would teach us something. And that's what I remember. I don't remember the, the detail of anything else, to be honest with you. So like, okay, let's just move over to the TED Talk bit, really, because I, I know a lot of my friends and colleagues and clients, they always say, oh, we want to write a book and we want to do a TED Talk. So number one, how do you actually secure a TED Talk? And I mean, the real TED Talk, not a TEDx talk. They're both real TED Talks. And number two, what would you say are some good key features of, of a great, meaningful and impactful TED Talk? Uh, so my my journey to doing a TED Talk was um, had lots of serendipity in it. I didn't I didn't try to do one per se. It was uh, um, it came on the back of a science writing prize that I'd won through uh, the Medical Research Council back in. It was, it was more than 10 years ago now, 2012, and then it got published in the Metro. And on the back of it getting published, I uh, had a fair bit of media interest. Um, and that media interest uh, led to the TED program being aware of the work we were doing in Kenya. When someone reached out saying, you should apply for the Fellows program, sounds like you're uh, one of our tribe. Um, so I, I got in touch, put in an application and uh, was successful. And part of the TED Fellows program. They take on 20 new fellows every year. Um, and part of that program is if you're made a fellow, you do a TED talk um, on the main stage um, and a proportion of those will will get published online. Uh, so I was kind of really fortunate to, to get to do one, to meet uh, fellow crazies and to, uh, to do a talk, which uh, um, I think is the one that you're referencing. You've got two. So just yeah, to build on that then, what 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 do you feel are the main features of a of a really great TED talk that succeeds? So I think, and this this applies not just for a TED talk, but any any good talk is that the talk is not for you as the speaker, it's it's for your audience. So you're it's an opportunity to give the audience something, uh, whether that's an insight, uh, a call to action. Uh, a sense of urgency um, or, or new information that they they can use, um, and you know I've seen lots of great ones, but I think 
the the ones that I particularly like are where there's a clear narrative. Uh, you know, there's a storyline that you can follow through as a, a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, and when done well, they tend to create a moment of um, space in your mind, a, a question that you you suddenly feel uncomfortable with or such as Mama Phillips situation. You know, if I'd gone into more detail about why she was blind and the fact that it was from a completely curable condition, you want to create that sense of um, what I felt, you know, it's not fair, why? Um, and then to be able to come with the other side of, and there's a potential solution, here's an idea that could change that outcome uh, and be able to lay the foundations for that in, in a way where the recipient doesn't have to work anything out. So you should make the audience uh be just moving at the pace that you're sharing it so then i'm to do any calculation or right. or working out and if you're ever giving a lecture the best way to lose your audience is make them have to work something out um and uh one of the best ways to to uh really put an audience off is to have lots of text on slides whilst you're talking uh anyone who reads books to their school to their children will know uh if you're getting them to read and you're reading the text at the same time, they can't listen to you and read. Um, it's the same when we're adults. So I don't quite know why we continue to present in that way, but one of the things Ted is very good at is ensuring people uh, only use slides or images to enhance the story that they're telling. Exactly, and I, and I remember watching your TED talk. You've done two as far as I know, and the first one especially, it's just images essentially. And I remember again, one of our, um, directors of public health in the Oxfordshire area, this is about 10 years ago, whenever he would give a presentation to politicians, to journalists and, and others, it was just photos. There were no no text on the slide. So look, I just want to kind of um, get into a bit more detail about peak now. So as I said, you and I, we were med school friends and back then I wanted to be an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon and did my elective in that. But for some reason I went this way and <laughs> you went down that path, which is great. And then it was in rough, I think you did the talk in 2014, actually. And I was toying with this idea of how else can I practice public health um, beyond just academia and the regular service-based public health, which I still do, but how can I, you know, reach more people through this side of my work as well? And it was you and a couple of others that I saw, and I interviewed you, remember, for a magazine about 10 years ago as well. And it was that that I thought, hey, look, if he's doing it, come on, I need to put my hat into this ring and I'll, I'll do this now. I'd love to hear more about what led you to go from doing clinical you know, surgery to a PhD, I think it was, and then going out to Kenya and then eventually leading to peak. Sure. So um, let me take you back to before I was doing, before I was an ophthalmologist, before we even met, um, I, I grew up with quite severe vision impairments. I'm very myopic, minus eight, um, which meant at the age of 12, I couldn't see anything that was going on at school, but I had done my best to avoid having to wear glasses. And when I did, it was so transformative that that moment literally changed my life. Um, and I um, felt a strong desire to make sure that that experience wasn't something that was only for people like me who grew up with all sorts of privilege and uh, an opportunity that I was acutely aware was not the case for everyone else. So my, my journey into med school was 
founded on a desire to become a doctor so that I might do something. And I know a lot of people when they start med school, it's they want to help people, and it's and it's true. Um, but I th I think for me the idea of um, just being a consultant was almost a bit scary. Um, uh, and, and I was only a few months from qualifying as a consultant ophthalmologist when I moved to Kenya, uh, which was part of my PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And the reason I made that transition then was I wanted to go from looking down and microscope and operating on an individual person's eye to knowing how do I help a million people that don't see? And they're completely different skills. And the public health journey really took me to understanding um, both the service side and the patient side of that journey, but all the barriers that sit in between and systematically started to see what could we do to take down those barriers. And that became what is now PEAK. Um, and they broadly went across looking at how do you find people? Because so many of these people are invisible to the health services. So how do you make them visible? Um, and that's where we built apps that non-healthcare workers could, could use because there's so few health workers. And then how could you connect those people who had been previously invisible to the care that they needed? And that's where we built this backend system that made the referrals and triaged and tracked who was dropping out of the system. Um, and uh, through doing that, that's the platform really that is now driving so much of the innovation in the, in the programs. Um, and the reason we spun Peak out from the university was um, to make sure that the evidence we were building through all of our trials and validation studies was translated into tools that people could actually use on the ground. Um, and the reason I haven't spun out Peak and then kept a distance from the universities, I feel there's so much value in the academic process of hypothesis testing and answering and and so much of this work so much of entrepreneurship is problem solving that's the best of science is problem solving is getting the question right and then formulating your methodology to answer that question and know if your answer is meaningful the the principles of academia and entrepreneurship are effectively the same it so is uh andrew and, and actually I, everywhere i go at work in my day job as well i you're one of the stories that i share so um who knows, something might come your way at some point. But here's the, the cool thing, like, you know, when I've been learning about business and MBA level, like knowledge, and then teaching it too, you've probably heard of lean startup methods. That's hypothesis testing, isn't it? It's iteration and learning. It is the scientific method. And then similar things, and I won't go into detail, but selling in a high level way is actually very much like a consultation with a consultant or a doctor. It's the same process, but us as health professionals, medics, nurses, or anyone really, we kind of get stunned by the idea of entrepreneurship thing. It's something really strange. And um, so I'd love your tips really to like fellow doctors, nurses, pharmacists, whoever in this health profession, if they're exploring getting into this world, it's not easy. You and I know that, but it, actually it's a lot of fun too. So have you got any tips for, for us out there? Um, I th think if there is an area that you're particularly frustrated with so you know i've heard for you know i spent enough time in the nhs and i still hear the same stories that i did 10 years ago about the frustrations in the system and uh, if only it were like this i could do this and sometimes it's looking at that same issue and saying maybe i can change it to be like that what would i have to do to change the processes the systems the people that would enable that um, and so it's often a translation of frustrations into opportunity. 
And if you care enough about the outcome, then it's worth trying to change the underlying uh, issue. Um, I think for any individual, it's got to be your personal driver as well. You have to be, um, you know, if you're, if you're at that point where you're feeling like, am I just going to be doing the same job for the rest of my life? And yeah, you may have kind of good material comfort, but maybe you don't have that comfort in your chest in the morning when you wake up that you're, you're doing what you're meant to be doing. Um, if you have that feeling, I would really strongly suggest not to ignore it uh, because there's usually something there that needs your attention. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. And if you don't do it by yourself, work with someone who is in that world and collaborate because they need our um, knowledge and expertise without a doubt. So first of all, I've got one last question for you. Feel free to add anything, Andrew. But uh, for you watching, listening, if you do want to learn more about Peak Vision and Andrew, do check out the information below. So Andrew, I've got one final question, which is, and again, it's not a trick question, so it can be related to what you're doing now, or it could be anything, but I ask this of everyone, which is like, if you were going to start, launch the next venture, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit, but specifically in the health world, what would be the specific problem you'd love to solve now? Oh, um, it's very hard for me to see beyond the problem that I'm currently solving, if I'm honest. Um, I feel like every time we solve a problem with the work we're doing, all we do is uncover another problem. Um, sometimes it's a meta problem. Um, and it's something I'm actively looking at now is around how do we change the funding model? So that's the uh, subject of the second TED Talk is... How do we actually drive resource to where there is need and have it be led by where resources are needed as opposed to where resources are held? And um, that is a nut I would love to crack because that would not only unlock um, a lot of the challenges we face with peak going to the kind of scale we want, but it would for many other areas of, of development. And I'm taking that as a more global health perspective because it is really you know, here in the UK, for example, we use the health needs assessment for public health and resource allocation, but completely agree with you that, that there's a mismatch at the global level in terms of where needs are and where resources go. Um, you are a public health clinician, no matter what you do, so you can't escape from this. <laughs> so we're on the same page.